0: Maybe our child's eating has changed for some outside reason, like maybe that's how they're dealing with a new stressor in their life. And maybe instead of focusing on the food, we can focus on what is actually going on with them emotionally. It's very common to turn to food for emotional reasons.
1: When it comes to healthy eating habits, it is essential to focus on balance and trust rather than strict rules or restrictions. However, for many of us, this is the exact opposite of the way we were raised. And this mindset shift, along with a lifetime of growing up in a world that equated weight with self-worth, can really be a major hurdle for parents, especially mothers. And to have to confront all of this while also trying to nurture our child's relationships to food can be a tall order. Joining me today is Amelia Sherry. She's a New York-based registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she's the author of the book, Diet Proof Your Daughter. Throughout today's episode, we're going to explore the role that parents play in shaping a child's body image and their feelings towards food, and we're going to offer you some practical tips for fostering healthy eating habits with your own children. If you've been listening to this podcast, you have probably heard me say over and over how important self-care is for parents. And I don't mean spa days and weekend getaways, though if you can squeeze that in, more power to you. I mean some very basic and often overlooked things that can have a huge impact on the way we feel about ourselves and the amount of patience and bandwidth we have when parenting our children. Getting enough sleep, staying hydrated and getting proper nutrition all go a really long way in filling our cups and preventing some of the symptoms of burnout. And that is why I was so excited that Sakara is offering securely attached listeners 20% off their meal program or functional wellness products with code Dr. Sarah Sakara for first-time customers. Sakara is a meal delivery service, but not one of those where you have to do the cooking. No, they send you high quality, clean, individually packaged meals backed by cutting edge nutrition science and traditional healing wisdom to give your body what it needs to thrive. So you'll be removing an item off your to-do list, plus fueling your body with 100% organic vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and fiber-packed meals that will give you more energy and help you feel your best, exactly what your body needs to parent most effectively. So if you're sick of your dinners consisting only of discarded crust or a few bites of leftover mac and cheese, check out Sakara and see if one of their nutrition programs feels like a good fit for you. And don't forget to use code Dr. Sarah Sakara for first-time customers to receive 20% off. That's D-R-S-A-R-A-H-S-A-K-A-R-A. Dr. Sarah Sakara. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Brenn a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, we have an amazing guest. Amelia Sherry is here to talk to us all about diet proofing our relationship with our kids. She has an amazing book called Diet Proof Your Daughter, A Mother's Guide to Raising Girls Who Have Happy, Healthy Relationships with Food and Body. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to be talking about our own stuff around food. And there's just so much going on right now, whether it's social media or looking at the changing styles of clothing and all the buzz that's getting. I just think there's a lot of attention on bodies. I think there always has been, but as, I mean, as a mom of both a boy and a girl, I'm very aware of how that comes into play with my relationships with my kids. And, you know, you've got three. And so I'm sure, you know, a lot about this too in real life. So first of all, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. And do you want to maybe just start out by introducing kind of like your story, how you got into this work and what led you to write this book? Sure. I'll try to do, <clears throat> excuse me,
0: abbreviated version of it. Um, I am a registered dietitian. A pe- I specialize in pediatrics, but that is a sort of second or maybe even a third career for me. I'm in my late forties. I initially started working, out, uh, working in women's magazines um, as a health and nutrition writer. And I came to that because I had been dieting since the time I was in middle school, very focused on trying to eat, quote unquote, perfectly and have the perfect body. And it did kind of fuel this um, interest in writing about it and being in women's magazines, of course. Um, And eventually I healed my relationship with food. And then I went on to go back to school to become a nutritionist. I wanted to work with people more one-on-one, though not in eating disorders. I was becoming um, a mother at the time, and I was very interested in pediatrics. And I ended mm-hmm. up in pediatric endocrinology, which if you're not familiar, I was basically as a dietitian. they're helping kids at either end of the weight and growth spectrum. So either kids who were in larger than maybe average bodies or kids who were being referred to endocrinology because of their BMI, and then kids who were in smaller than average bodies, um, you know, or had what weight-centric medicine calls like too low BMI. So it just Mm -hmm. was complicated to figure out how to talk to them and their parents about food. And I started to sort of see what moms in particular were struggling with and dads, but moms just tended to come to the visits a lot more often. Um, And it reawoke my own sort of healing with my relationship with food. And so now that's what I specialize in.
1: I think there's such a need for this because like you said- what did you call it weight centric medicine?
0: Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: I think that we've all we've all been touched by weight centric medicine. I mean, if you look at parents right now, like i i guess let's see i'm thirty eight and I'm technically a millennial. I'm like right on that cusp, but i I feel like when I was growing up, it was. Unrelenting, the kind of, and we—I didn't—we didn't have social media, right? There, this was just in the tablets, the magazines. You go to the grocery store, and there's 15 magazines just sitting there, being like, "Fit or fat?" Or circling celebrities, cellulite, and and look how skinny she got, and oh, she's skinnier than her, and all of these messaging constantly in commercials, in every which way. TV shows. It was everywhere. And so I don't know, I don't know anybody who grew up around the time I did that doesn't have some part, some story about feeling like there was a ton of attention on bodies and either directly or indirectly their body.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that Um, I'm a decade or so older than you and I felt it as well from magazines. Uh, My mother felt it. uh, She was in Weight Watchers for decades and Mm -hmm. very focused on appearance, just felt like we were most obligated to be, I think, in order to be part, you know, that's part of being a woman. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think now, you know, magazines obviously aren't as popular, but social media is, uh, you know, even more um, nebulous and sort of powerful because of the way that it responds to our interests. So for example, I actually talk about in my book, like, so I was very into magazines, as I mentioned, like I would see all those images that you were describing be like, instead of rejecting them, I think, yes, I want to learn how to, you know, perfect the way I look, just like these magazines. I didn't have obviously the Mm -hmm. discernment to say this is ridiculous, but, um, in, as a magazine, you know, you look through a few pages, you close it, it's over as say a teenager, but with social media, you see an image and it's responds to you. So um, imagine if, if I really get a magazine and I lingered on a page that was telling me how to get thinner thighs and then the magazine responded by showing me more and more images of women with thinner mm-hmm. thighs or then um, a workout for how to get my thighs thinner, it just would be so much you know, more like worse, harmful, difficult to escape. So I think about that and that being what our kids, girls and boys are up against in terms of using social and, um, it's, it's powerful and we need to understand it. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These, the algorithms really add a whole layer of like complexity to this that, cause I've actually, it's funny cause I'll talk to a lot of my patients or my, you know, I'm working with people who I work with a lot of parents. I also work with some a, a good amount of kids, but I, I, and some ad, like younger adults, but I will often say, you know, you really want to try to audit your algorithm as much as you can, because what we don't really realize, this is a total tangent, but it's, I think important because, and re- relevant is the like you said, the algorithm, when we linger on something, the algorithm presumes we will want more of that content and we'll, continue to show us more and more of that content. But the problem is, is we linger on things that we like. We also on we also linger on things because it elicits unpleasant feelings in us um, or shame or fear or sadness or all kinds of not so good feelings. Um, this is also really true in trauma. Like we sometimes freeze on images that are connected to our trauma. And so... The problem with that is the algorithm does not understand if we're lingering because we want more of it or we're lingering because we're kind of really overwhelmed by it. And so we can inadvertently create an algorithm that is highly triggering for Mm -hmm. us. And so I tell people like you can go in and if you're seeing con- like do an audit every once in a while of the stuff that you're getting shown and check in like do I want to be seeing this and if you don't you can go in and say don't show me things like this or show me less of this so you can manually override the algorithms like you know whatever it is that they're doing to assess because it can really it the, the um, impact both consciously and unconsciously is really profound of seeing this stuff all the time mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So in doing a social media audit with our teens or preteens is so important. We do this, I do this in session quite a bit, um, really teaching them one of the skills to be really critical um, and a conscientious consumer, right? Of social media is being, is looking through accounts. The way I do an audit is also having a um, the other person reflect on how each account is making them feel. So one is, what is the purpose? Mm-hmm. Why am I following this person? Is it education, entertainment, or connection, say for a friend, for example, social reasons, um, making sure there's a reason. It isn't just something that was recommended to you. And now you're blindly kind of following it, it caught your interest without thinking. So we want to be really specific and with what we're following. And then also really reflect on how these images or accounts are making us feel so hey how do you feel after we you know go through so and so's um feed for example and teaching our like I work with mothers and help them sort of teach their daughters sometimes I do with their daughter um you know directly but teaching them to be aware of how the account's making them feel so like you know if it is a negative experience, then there's no reason to follow this account. You know, social media is here to serve us. It's supposed to be a tool. It's supposed to make life better and enhance things, not make us um, not hurt us. So we have to be very aware, right? Of what of what we're looking at. And even mm-hmm. as an adult, I always empathize too with the girls I work with. Um, you know, even as an adult, that's hard to do, you know? And we're all just really new to this. And um, you know, adults do it we do it to ourselves as well, you know, compare ourselves, maybe, maybe less so, you know, with body, maybe, you know, maybe that's the issue, but other things, career, you know, vacations, trips, things like that. So we too have to be aware of how it's impacting us and really, um, cut out the things that aren't, you know, positive influences for us or educational, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious too, sort of pivoting. Cause you know, I know a lot of the people listening are parents. They may not have teens. They might. But a lot of our listeners have much younger kids. And I am and I know, like, I'm always saying, like, everything we do is laying the groundwork for later, right? So having these intentional strategies now when your kids are really little can really, it's, you know, this is the time. If you haven't done this and you have a teenager, you can deal with that as well. But if you have really little kids, now is the time. Like if you're listening to this and be like, well, I don't have a teenager, so I don't have to worry about this. Like, no, actually now is exactly the time to be thinking about this. Like, can you talk a little bit about like positive food parenting and this idea of like laying the groundwork for these healthy relationships from food early on?
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, going back to the social media, one way you can prepare is by doing it on yourself, right? Be- getting those skills on yourself and realizing how you're using it so that when it is time, when your your daughter's son, your child gets older, you do know, oh, this is how I use it in a positive way. Um, but back to food, um, I love that we keep using the word intentional because what the framework I use with the parents I work with is called the intentional feeding mindset. And so I work with mothers and daughters primarily, and the intention, we need to be really intentional and recognize the threat of, or the danger risk of disordered eating um, and eating disorders and sort of approach how we're thinking about food, talking about food, parenting around food with really one major intention is to prevent these the, the disordered eating. Um, and so being a uh aware of diet culture influences is one way of doing that. Um I have a whole framework that I use with five points and we work together on those different areas. So some in session I'll like recognize there's one area that is really sticky and challenging and you know what do we all do in that case things that are hard we tend to shy away from, you know, and go for mm-hmm. easy things. Um so those those parts that are tricky, those are the ones that we t- tend to lean into. Would you like to know some of the things we work on in, in terms of?
1: Yeah, yeah, that would be super interesting.
0: Yeah. So one of the main things is trust, building trust with our children in foods. So we really want to learn how to trust our child to listen to their body and eat as much or as little as they need to. Um, at any given time, right? So this can be really challenging if we are having trouble trusting ourselves with food, if we feel that we can't be trusted around food or certain foods, or we need to limit foods, um, or if we have mm-hmm. a lot of fear about different foods, be it because of potential for weight gain or even health concerns, which sometimes override now too, even if we're able to put the weight stuff to the side. So um, A way to lay the groundwork of just first to be acknowledged, like, are you um, interfering with your child's ability to figure out how much or how little, for example, saying you haven't had enough or you've had too much. And if that's resonating with any parent and you're cringing right now, don't we all do it, even though I know not to do it. It still comes out of my mouth now and again. Um, But when you understand that, like um, teaching your child to listen to you instead of their own body is not something we want to do. That's just like reading a diet book or getting information from a magazine or following an eating trend, right? We really want them to be um, self-aware and internally regulated. So building a lot of trust in our child and if it's challenging for us, we might want to reflect. My book includes a lot of reflection. So why is it challenging? Do we trust ourselves around food? What's been our history? Were we parented in a way where our parent was limiting us a lot or or commenting that we had a big appetite sort of in a negative way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes the other way too, you know, not maybe our parent didn't trust us to eat enough and we were constantly being criticized. We're too thin. You know, many parents I work with have kids two totally different eaters with different um, issues Mm -hmm. as well. And we might notice we're treating one one way and the other another way. So that's, that's just one, that's one of the five. Yeah. What do you think about, about that?
1: Well, that's interesting because I see this happen a lot with parents who perhaps are like, I'm I'm not worried about my child's weight at all. um, But I still feel like I'm directing their eating. And so I think, you know, the parents who are very aware of their child's weight, because either, you know, they feel like their child's weight is too high or their child's weight is too low and they're getting messages from the pediatrician that they need to modify their diet in some way. That is obviously a challenge for parents because that level of anxiety around mealtime now is like very present, right? Oh my God, as a parent, I mean, perhaps there's even this background noise in your head, like I'm failing my Mm -hmm. child and now I need to like really get better at being the parent that feeds and nourishes my child in the right way. And so that obviously, I can see how that brings a ton of anxiety to mealtime, which I would love to hear your thoughts on how do we manage that anxiety. But I see so many parents who they're not coming to me for anything related to mealtime stuff other than power struggles, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that their kids need more or less, which I know we could probably articulate differently because they probably don't need, quote, more or less. They need to, like you said, they need to be able to kind of know their internal cues better and respond to them with more accuracy. Mm -hmm. And how do we build that? But like, I'm curious too, because I know there's people here who are listening who like, I just don't, my kid, I made all this food and they're not eating it. They're not, you know, it's mealtime and they need to sit down and know what time, what, what, what what we do at mealtime. And they only want to eat the mashed potatoes, but they won't touch their broccoli. And I, you know, they only want chicken nuggets. And I keep, you know, sometimes it's, I'm, I'm feel like a short order cook. I'm making 15 different things and they won't eat anything. And then I'm just getting frustrated. How do we, how do we break out of this cycle? Because I don't think it's about the food in these situations. I think it's about The relationship and the power dynamic and the attention. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So one thing I always say is never, ever, ever get in a power struggle with your child over food. This is something that you really want to avoid um, as much as possible. And I say that, first of all, it is really stressful. So as a parent, I'm telling you, we don't want to do that. It will be less stressful for you as well. You do not need to be um, micromanaging your child's food and we don't need to get in a power struggle over it. So we all need to, to relax a little bit. Um, and one way that we can help our child with their eating is to really understand the parts that we can we want to lean into and sort of parent with and the parts that we should really lean out with and let our child kind of figure out on their own. Uh, one of those things is, like you mentioned, not liking, you know, doesn't want to eat the greens, but wants to eat the, I don't know, starches. I'm, I can't remember that. That's typical, but I can't remember exactly the example you gave. Um, remember your child is what I like to call developing eating skills, just like any other skill. So they will develop and come to these things in time and we just need to be there to offer a variety of foods, but not necessarily demand that they like and eat certain things. One reason being that, first of all, if your child's growing and developing normally, they're eating well. We, we again, don't need to micromanage everything that they're putting in their mouth. If you're doing your job as a parent and offering meals at regular intervals that are appropriate for their age, you know, more frequently for younger and maybe less frequently for older, and and offering variety to best, the best that you can, given how busy you are, what resources you have, that is enough. You are doing great food parenting. From there, we want to lean out and let our child figure out how much or how little and also what they like and don't like. Um, Just like an analogy I use with this eating skills is like you're you need to sort of trust that your child's going to come along with it over time and approach it with a positive attitude, sort of and an attitude of expecting success. The analogy I use a lot, mm-hmm. um, in the workshops I do is like when your child was learning to walk, every time they sort of you know made an attempt or move forward with it, we we celebrate and got excited and we didn't dwell on any mistakes or trips or falls, or even if they weren't, you know, doing it fast enough, we just sort of expected that they would get it over time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a really good attitude to have with food as well in time. When, you know, when they're, they will start learn to eat a variety as long as we keep it the, um, atmosphere at meals, consistent and positive, right? So that's another Mm -hmm. reason we don't want to show up and have a lot of anxiety and feel like, oh gosh, now we're going to have a battle here and fight over what they need to eat or don't eat. Um, Because then it becomes, the child loses their own confidence in themselves. We have a term called Mm -hmm. eating confidence. They feel less confident. They show up to the table feeling worried, anxious, or just feeling like, you know, bad. And that is not conducive to learning how to eat variety, eating in tune with your actual body sensations and appetite. Um, So being a little more relaxed with foods is really important, avoiding those, those struggles and having more Mm -hmm. faith and that your child is going to grow with their eating. Maybe they're not going to love, you know, kale or whatever it is right now, or even when they're 15 or 16. But if we have a positive attitude about it and keep exposing these, the variety over time, they will, there's a good chance they may like it. They might not love it. Maybe they'll start to eat it later because they're familiar with it or it's available. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason that they need to, um, just sort of start right out of the gate, eating all this variety and all these different, um, you know, what's often kind of
1: unfamiliar to, to, to them. Right. And can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's helpful. I think, because I think one, I, I know, I know that power struggles over mealtime is super common. Mm -hmm. And so if you are having them, I think it can feel like very permission giving to say like, I don't have to do this. Like it's okay if I serve a plate full of chicken and broccoli and mashed potatoes. And the only thing that they eat is mashed potatoes, that that's okay. How do we help ourselves as parents not go into that spiral of how is that okay? But why, you know, is it okay to teach them that I did all this work and you're not going to respect it? Is it okay to teach them that you don't have to eat your vegetables, that there are certain foods that are you know, they come first, and other foods come later. Like I think these are a lot of myths that are very common and very understandable. Like I think we all really—they're counterintuitive to to sort of say I don't have to think that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: How do you how do you help parents kind of navigate that?
0: Um, well, the first thing is really sort of sussing out what is their job and what's the child's job. So it's their job to offer a variety of food, offer the food consistently um, and be uh, at regular intervals and make it a positive environment. And so if you're doing your job, you can then let your child do the job that they need to do, which is eat as much or as little. In terms of them not eating variety, we have so many, like our culture just approaches foods as like from what I call fear-based or it's a fear-based avoidance. And we have so much pressure on us that we need to eat certain foods, right? But what we want to do is think about um, developing like that variety over time. If your child isn't eating a lot of vegetables, for example, for a few months or maybe even a few years, that is not defining their entire health or how they're going to eat for the rest of their lives. Like we always want to think about to help parents relax and to not engage in those power struggles, I remind them what their jobs are, is to keep offering different foods um, and to model eating them. I Sometimes we put a lot of pressure on our kids and then we realize, like, we don't even really want to eat this, right? Like, it's not our favorite. So recognizing that and being empathetic, maybe thinking of different ways to prepare things and, like, you know, that are more acceptable to yourself or your child Um, But thinking one thing is to always think to like over the long term, we really want to solve for your child having a positive relationship with food over the long term, not just focusing on getting them to eat something at this meal or um, Mm -hmm. during this six months where they maybe dropped a food. Um, We want to think, again, just making this positive, showing them that um, they can trust us to provide the food at regular times and, um, you know come to that table and have a positive experience, that's something we want them mm-hmm. to have over time, right? So that they can continue to do what I call also just good self-care by feeding themselves regularly, reliably, um, and being kind of re- more relaxed and less
1: fearful, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that fear, I imagine, is amplified when your kid is higher on the weight spectrum or lower on the weight spectrum. Do these strategies still apply for those circumstances? Would mm-hmm. you modify them at all?
0: Yeah. So what when parents come to me and their child is sort of following their curve, it, like this is easier. I can, it can put a lot of these fears to rest by just saying, let's look at the curve. Your child's growing, developing normally, even though they haven't been eating carrots and like i don't know enough fiber for the past four years but that's okay because they're growing normally they're just, they have positive relationships they're doing well in school all of the things they're getting they're well nourished and they're doing well right um we don't want to drop it and just not you know who cares what they eat and give up our job as a parent by being a, provo- a responsible re- provider um, but we can also relax that they're doing really well with eating right um, mm-hmm. But it can be more challenging when our child's um, – their BMI or their body weight is just changing in ways that are unexpected, either dropping off the curve or pull, so what we call pulling up, sort of um, gaining more weight than they were in relation to their height. So in those cases, it's um, – it is a lot more complicated, but it's still those these things actually still do apply in terms of figuring out what's our job and what's their job sometimes. There are different parts of food parenting that maybe we could be doing better. For example, if we're overly worried about weight gain, we might start to restrict or limit either certain foods or amounts. and that can actually exacerbate the problem by driving the child to be more focused on food because they're going to get anxious. Right. So that could be one thing. Another thing could just be, maybe we're being, maybe we are stressed out. We haven't been off like showing up for meals. Right. Or paying attention, maybe giving our child too much responsibility with food. Maybe our child's eating for um, their eating has changed for, some outside reason, like maybe that's how they're dealing with a new stressor in their life. And maybe instead of focusing on the food, we can focus on what is actually going on with them emotionally. Because It's very common to turn to food for emotional reasons, which is okay. I talk a lot about in my book, emotional eating makes sense. Food is emotional and it help us feel good um, and deal with stress or happiness. But when we're doing that chronically over the long term and not dealing with the underlying problem, that's, Problematic, right? Um, mm-hmm. And all uh, all these things—it's being underweight or overweight, or having our weight start to drop or increase—is something to note. But it doesn't necessarily—it absolutely, I should say—does mean we come in as parents and provide more rules. We need to figure out what changed with eating and address that, and not address their actual eating habits. It sounds very strange coming from a dietitian, but that, that, um, that is my approach. And so we, we do a lot of digging, of course.
1: Yeah. That makes actually make, I mean, coming from my background in psychology and behavior, that makes so much sense actually, because I think, like you said, when you, when you hyper focus on the problem quote, you can't see me quoting, but the problem, Mm -hmm. that's what everything starts to get like, like that part of our, whatever we attend to gets amplified. And like you said, we want to reflect to our children our confidence that they can handle this, that they can have a healthy relationship to food, that feeding and eating can be positive, that mealtimes can be relaxed and fun and playful and pleasant. Um, And when our kids get that messaging from us, not just explicitly, but like we have to walk the walk um, and like show up calmly and show up in a way that is not you know, countering the words that we're saying, then we have more space to deal with the bigger issues outside of the moment. Because like I say with everything, whether it's behavior issue or power struggle or, you know, anxiety, whatever it is, this, the, the, the nine times out of 10, what we have to do is going to happen outside of the heat of the moment. It's not, so if meal times If the problem is related to eating, mealtimes actually aren't the time to address it. It's counterintuitive, but it really makes sense. Just like if your kid is having an absolute meltdown because they just, you know, they, they just hit their sibling and lost their, lost everything. That's not the time to actually do the disciplining. The discipline needs to happen in a different space from that heat of the moment. And so not that this is about discipline necessarily as much, but it's, The strategy building for us, like how we're going to strategize around supporting our kids in a different way has to happen when we're calm. Implementing new plans and, and behavioral approaches has to happen outside of the heat of the moment. So it does sound counterintuitive at first, but when you really kind of look at it in the context of like the bigger picture, I actually think it makes so, so much sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, it could put me out of business, right? Because like (laughs) what, like, and, but, but as I work a lot more with mindset and what I call eating behaviors than actual nutrition. um, In fact, I encourage parents to simplify nutrition. So when there is a problem, like you said, with food, it isn't about the food; it's other things. We want to focus less on actually what the child is eating and more on what is driving the behaviors and what's going on um, in the background and why they're, you know, reluctant to try things or why they might be eating more than they really feel comfortable that with. Um, and that definitely is not going to happen often directly with the child at all, and it is definitely going to happen away from the table. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of what goes wrong, unfortunately, our culture is related to concerns about overly concerned about body weight. Um, and even when we say we are not concerned about weight, a lot of us typically then start to say, well, we're worried about health and that interferes as well. Um, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Like, I know, I mean, I do this too. Like you said, like, I know all the quote rules about like, okay, don't make your kid eat three more bites and don't say you have to do this before you can have dessert or all that stuff. But I still hear myself saying it all the time because I'm like, it's just, it's just really hard to not micromanage. But I also think there is this kind of confusing balance of, on the one hand, I know, and I know a lot of parents know, like we're not supposed to refer to foods as like good or bad or like healthy or unhealthy, or maybe we do want to teach them about health. Like how do we find that balance? Like we don't, we want to help our kids have healthy boundaries around, you know, an understanding about nutrition, but we don't want to scare them into like becoming hyper-focused on it either. So what, or, so what do we do?
0: Yeah, for sure. So some of the things go back to also just checking our own bias fear and that avoidance of certain foods like all foods have nutrition all foods can fit we don't actually need to be as fearful of our kids eating things that we might have been told over and over and over is unhealthy for example sugar um or fats we our kids can eat these things and we can eat these things too in um smaller amounts, but we don't need to tell our child even especially young children that we need to avoid this and start instilling fear in them. Um, we, that is like a higher, that's a higher responsibility of like an older child and a parent doesn't need to get into that with young children. I recommend just keeping nutrition very simple. We don't even need to discuss it unless they actually ask us about it. But what we can do is be mindful of what we're bringing in our home and like what we're offering at meals. So instead of Mm -hmm. saying, you know, having some ice cream in the fridge and then your child's asking for it, asking for it, we're saying, Oh no, but you can't eat it. You can only eat a little bit. You can only have so much. That's really not, helpful, right? And it's so hard because we get into a food struggle. Um, Maybe we want to have ice cream in the home and offer it, you know, alongside a meal or as a dessert occasionally and let our child, that's where we want to stand out. And if they need five scoops of it, then they need five scoops in that particular night to feel good about it. If we allow that over time with most kids, I mean, oh. Most kids will be able to, some it's going to take longer and some it's going to happen more quickly. They'll get satiated and bored of it. And then they know next time they can have, you know, they have the freedom to sort of eat as much or as little as they want. That's actually a great, great skill. That's part of being a competent eater. We call that, again, we've been talking about a lot, but internal regulation. Um, That is a much better skill to teach your child than teaching them that sugar's bad and ice cream isn't something is like only a sometimes food and we can't eat it often. Um, which is mm-hmm. very abstract. It's very fear-based. And it's not, it's not actually even true. Like your child like ice cream even has calcium in it, right? And vitamin D. And like there's we don't need to only eat one half cup of it in order to be quote unquote like a healthy, a healthy
1: eater, for example. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And I think it's a, it's a real, it's a real mind bend. Kind of going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode is like most parents come from this highly, highly amplified diet culture growing up where there was like a ton of really explicit messaging around foods being good and bad and our worth being connected to our size and i think that's still happening today i think it's a lot more diluted and it's it's not as explicit as it may have been when we were growing up but like it was it was everywhere and so i think if you grew up in that and it's really ingrained and you know no no, no there are some foods that are bad and if you eat it you will get fat and being fat is bad like it's really hard to break that and i think it's interesting because i'm i'm so curious and maybe people can write in and let me know but if you're listening to this and you're like cringing at this idea of like i could give my kid five scoops of ice cream and that's not unhealthy and that's okay and what could that what does that have to break inside of my schema like how how much does that like mess with my blueprint on what's okay and what's not okay and perhaps that says less about our child and more about us and what we have to kind of just reflect on and perhaps unlearn? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Um, This is like the core of what is my book is about. I hate to just keep referencing my book because it's not helpful. Um, But yeah, absolutely. What is going to happen if your child eats five scoops of ice cream? I mean, I know I've done that or a whole pint of ice cream. I mean, what is going to really hurt them is to have them to start being just worried and eat ice cream and then feel terrible about it, remorseful, guilty. Actually, ice cream has a lot of nutrition in it. It's high calorie, it has calcium, vitamin D, et cetera. If you're really uncomfortable with the idea of your child eating a lot of ice cream, what what I you know, what we would ask is like, why, what is the fear? Why do you feel like you can't trust them to eat it? And honestly, many, first people will usually start with, well, it's just not healthy. And then we have to go into a big conversation. What is health to you? What does that mean? Because that's very big. And honestly, underlying, because of the culture we live in, honestly, what is under that very often is weight, fear of weight gain. And that is a huge conversation that we need to have, you know, what if your child did gain weight? What you know, first of all, kids have a natural ability to maintain their weight when we allow them to eat what you know in amounts that are good for them. Um, they're very yeah. predictable. Most children develop at you know grow in very predictable ways. Um, so is that fear? You know what? But but if they did gain weight, or if they are in a larger body, what is the problem with that? You know, these are huge questions. They call into value. Mm-hmm. Um, are you following a whole chapter on influence in my book is this something that you're being a fear that is like coming from outside you a fear from health culture from diet culture mm-hmm. um is or you know what are we really afraid of by allowing them to eat these certain these certain foods you know especially in the absence of any particular disease like if they don't um, you know if they don't have a reason to be watching carbs like type 1 diabetes or high cholesterol, so maybe they shouldn't be eating, you know, a food with high fat, then there's, what is the real fear of of letting them sort of go for Mm -hmm. it and figure it out? You know, yeah, ice cream is delicious, but if you eat a pint of it every night, and I won't tell you how I know, or five pints, like over time, it becomes really a lot less desirable. And that's sometimes a lesson you need to let your child learn, um, this mm-hmm. is all in the context, too, though, of what what I teach in in terms of positive food parenting is we do need to provide structure for our kids. So we and rules. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to say, OK, just go for it. Go in the kitchen, figure out what you want, when you want. That is not helpful for them because they don't have the experience, especially younger kids to know, hey, I should. um you know they don't know that they need to eat variety because they don't understand just sort of basic nutrition so you need to at least offer mm-hmm. them variety we want to space things out for them so they can build up appetite between meals um also it's not practical like so maybe your kids really busy cuz they're very into like a soccer game or something they're doing playing with their friends, but they don't know we're leaving the house in an hour, right? So we need to eat lunch now because we're not having an opportunity to eat again for four hours because we're going out or two hours. So that's where an adult and parenting comes in around food, right? We need to sit down and have a meal because we haven't eaten in three hours and we're going, it's not practical to just stop everything and eat all the time, right? So that's where Mm-hmm. parenting comes in in terms of providing that structure like here are the meal times um also I'm going to make sure there's a variety to whatever extent I can um and so we don't want to leave everything up to kids that's what we call permissive parenting right. around food or even sometimes you know it's a horrible word but like sort of neglectful in the sense of we're not stepping in and doing our role as the parent, right? What happens is often the opposite where we don't provide a lot of that structure because we're stressed out or busy or just feel so hard, right? To show up for meals, especially if you're like me. Um, And if you've had a history of your own dieting or disordered eating, showing up for meals can be so triggering um, and so stressful you know, knowing when to have a rule and when not to have a rule that we might even avoid, right. avoid meals, right? So that makes yeah. sense. Um, and that's why a lot of us need support if we've been struggling with this on our own, right? Yeah. Um, and then, but what most of us do, so we don't show up for these meals as often as we should or as consistently as we should because they become very stressful, but we do show up in that way where we shouldn't, whereas we do show up in the micromanaging of like, don't eat that much. Don't eat that food. Don't eat, you know, don't um, mm-hmm. you didn't eat enough of that one. And that's the exact part we want to lean out of. So a lot of us are sort of doing the opposite of what would really help our kids over the long term, having a good relationship with yeah. food. And all of this requires, I am very empathetic because of my own background, just requires being very cognizant and aware of like what our own history with food has been and this whole you know, having, like you said, and started at the beginning of being um, a dieter my whole life and just, and so fearful now in our culture, everyone is afraid of weight because they think it's going to destroy our health, which is not true by the way, and a whole nother can of worms or another episode, but yeah. um, we are, you know, those are the things that are driving how we're parenting around food and it's not helpful. It's really not helpful at yeah. all.
1: And it makes so much sense because we were talking about trust earlier and how, okay, the goal is to trust our kids so that they learn to trust their internal cues. I know that that has got to be so, so difficult if you have over the course of your lifetime made to disconnect or trained yourself to disconnect from your internal cues, which I think as we're saying, like, I think culturally most of us have historically, like when we were growing up, there was no such thing as someone saying, you eat and you, you choose what you're going to eat from this Mm -hmm. plate of food and you decide what on this plate you're going to eat and how much of it. And you decide when you're done. It was like clean plate club. And like, you have to do this. And if you're, otherwise you're not going to get dessert or, um, Watching a parent say, I'm not eating anything. I'm not eating any of this for the rest of the month. Or I'm just going to have, you know, a Diet Coke for dinner tonight. You eat. Or whatever it is. And so all of those little things add up to us not necessarily having trust in our internal cues. So it's very difficult to imagine that our child could. So like the idea that we could imagine that our child might sit down with a bowl of ice cream that has five scoops, the five scoops that they asked for and the sprinkles and take two bites and be like, I'm done. I'm, I'm good. That's all I want. Like we don't, we've, we don't know how to do that. So we don't, we can't fathom that our kid might know how to do that. So I, I think it's, it is a lot of, it is a lot of the stuff that we have to kind of look at, which is, it's harder. It's a lot easier to try to just control the things outside of us than look at the things internally sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've, yeah, growing up, I mean, all of us have been just the culture we're living in told over and over that we cannot trust our instincts with so many things and food in particular. And then, you know, um, everyone is willing to rush in, you know, with here's advice or how to eat and rules and listen to mm-hmm. us from diet books and weight loss products and -hmm. All sorts of edicts and just ideas that were have been grown up thinking. Yes, it's better to listen to that outside information than it is to listen to ourselves. So um, it is really hard. Like even me talking about it right now, I'm sure many people are thinking like, what What is she talking about? You know, how can you? um, You know, for example, serving sizes. Just we've been. You know, people come to me as a dietitian and say, can you please tell me how much? That this cereal, or how much of meat or fish should my child eat? And I have to say, like, they're actually those serving sizes and recommendations are not helpful at all and not even valid, which again is another conversation. Um, there is no exact right amount, but we do want to think about variety just to be a little more helpful. Just think about offering your kids a lot of variety and eating it yourself um, and helping them to be more, um, internally regulated. And then again, like you said, if it's challenging, think about why it is so hard for us. I mean, it makes sense if it's, if you're listening to this and it's hard for you, it makes sense because again, we've all been told not to listen to ourselves over and over and over and over.
1: Right. Yeah. So if parents are listening and they're like, Oh man, I need help with this. Like what, how can they, what are your recommendations for like, where do they start?
0: You can start with my book. (laughs) Like, absolutely. (laughs) I think that things are laid out more probably clearly than with me, you know, talking right now about it. Um, If if you can look at the book, you can come to my website. It's nourishher.com with two H's. So nourish her. I do focus a lot of mothers and daughters, but all of the advice I give is evidence-based and it is applicable to any gender, any gender identity. Um, Absolutely. Yeah
1: that's great. And yeah, so I think that these are great resources and we'll definitely link everything in the show notes too so people can can take a look. And yeah, if you are struggling with this, if you are if your head is exploding by the things we're talking about, um check in, like reach out to somebody, you know, find out if you you know, either reach out to Amelia and see if you can work with her or Or find a dietitian near you where you can kind of get some support. And are there things that people should look for in a dietitian? Like, I'm mindful of the fact of, like, not everyone does the work the same way. Like, what do you want to look for if you're looking for someone who's going to help you to kind of relearn this intuitive connection with food and your relationship to food versus be like, let me give you a meal plan. Here you go. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you can um first of all many dietitians are way ahead of the curve and are more in tune with being intuitive eaters um and they then was probably the case or what people might be surprised when they talk to a registered dietitian to find out that they do have these beliefs um or ways of approaching eating at their core. So one thing to do is to make sure they're a registered dietitian, another is to see if they use intuitive eating as one of their methods or approaches. If you are concerned about your child in particular, you can ask if they have have training with at the Ellen Satter Institute, which is um, very al- aligned with the things that I've been talking about right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, yeah. I love Ellen Satter's work. I, I recommend her book all the time, which is Child of Mind Feeding with Love and Good Sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Actually, I, think that's the I have a,
0: another book of hers that I love. Can I recommend that one? Yes. It is called Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family. The first four chapters of it really have influenced my work so much. They outline what is called eating competence. And that's at the core of what we've been Mm -hmm. talking about today. I haven't used that term very much, but that's these eating skills that are really focused on being internally regulated, being accepting of different foods instead of very, um, having strong judgments and worries about them. Um, contextual skills is one of those things. Like, are you actually showing up for meals? Are you able to prepare things? So this is a great book. Um, And then the second half is just all recipes, uh, which I have to be honest, I don't use that much, but those first four chapters are awesome. They will give you so much to think about. And um, the positive food parenting course that I teach is based on eating,
1: the eating competence model in that book. That's amazing. Well, these are great resources. Thank you for sharing them. Thank you for coming on the show and telling us all of this wonderful information, because I think my hope is people are coming away from this episode feeling very seen because this is, it's so everywhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It is going to show up at your next meal, probably. It it confronts (laughs) us over and over. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. And, um, Come check out Nourish Her for sure. There are definitely resources there to help you.
1: That's amazing. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Sarah. This can be a hard conversation for many of us. It may take you some time to let it sink in and a lot of awareness to be able to reflect on why, if it did, make you a little uneasy. If you're interested in exploring this further, I recommend checking out Amelia's free audio guide, Four Key Positive Food Parenting Strategies to Protect your Kids from Diet Culture and Make Meals and Eating Less Stress and More Fun. Go to nourishher.com forward slash positive to download this guide. So thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this show, it would be so amazing if you could leave a rating and review wherever you're streaming. And don't be a stranger.